Amen. Hey, you guys can be seated. Uh, good evening. Welcome to New City Church, right? Praise God. It's a big day for us. Uh, if, if you're with us for the first time, or you came from out of town, just know that we're glad, we're glad you're here. Uh, it's, it's a big day for us in the life of our church. It's really a time for us to celebrate here what God has done really over the past two years. It's been leading up to Today is a, is a lot like a grand opening for our church. We've had this Sunday marked on our calendar for 18 months. 18 months for this day. And I think of this day, it's a lot, I, think it's, I think it's a lot like a wedding day, you know, just kind of the anticipation of it. It's a special day, but it symbolizes a story. It symbolizes a story of, of what God has done with great anticipation of what we believe God is going to do. Right? We have a lot of hope and anticipation, but a lot like a wedding day, it only marks the beginning of something. Right? What we're doing 30 years from now, how we're doing 30 years from now is much more important than how we're doing today. But today is still an important day for us. Right, it's a time to celebrate what God has done. It's, it's a still a sweet moment to enjoy. So give me about five minutes to kind of just tell the story of what God has done, how we led up to this point, what, what God has done. So something I know to be true is that the story of our church, it includes the story of every single person that moved here, that sacrificed and moved here to, to, to help start New City Church. It's uniting into one grand story. But for today, I want to start the story about four years ago. When I was standing on top of a mountain, and as far as the eye could see in every direction, there were millions of people in South Asia, millions of people, people that have never heard the name of Jesus, which we'll tell you in a few minutes, this is a big deal for us, it matters. And earlier that week, I went into a village on a moped, um, which that was a, a beautiful sight in itself. I was twice the size of these two guys, sandwiched right in the middle of these two guys, and it was postcard worthy just in and of itself, right? But uh, I was a nervous wreck. We were going all over the place. But when we got to this village, we opened up the Bible and spent hours telling them, telling them what we believe is the greatest story ever told. We told them about Jesus, who he was, what he, what he did, and why he is still important today. And in three days on a short-term mission trip, a church was birthed in a village where before had never heard the name of Jesus. Right? And when we were, at the, we were on top of that mountain reflecting on what we saw that week, Thinking about how that in that one area, that one area on this part of the world, there were 72 million people, but there's only 10 missionaries. 10 missionaries for 72 million people that have never heard the name of Jesus that are hungry for truth. And it became very clear, as Luke 10, 2 says, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then, in that moment, a question was placed on my heart that I believe came from God that I had to wrestle with. It would honestly change my life and the lives of many people here. And it would be, it was this, that I believe that God could use us to plant a church that would send people to the ends of the earth. And I knew, I knew what that meant, what meant leaving a comfortable, stable job, moving my family, my three kids, leaving friends, family, everything we knew. But we had to wrestle with the question. We had to wrestle with the question, do we believe that Jesus is worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And we sought wisdom, we sought guidance from others around us, and it became very clear that we needed to move forward with this. And so we chose Tampa for a number of reasons. We, wanted, we thought it would be a strategic city. It's a global city. We wanted to be near a major college university. USF has 50,000 college students. We wanted to be near families and young professionals. We wanted to be in a growing city, a city that has significant need for more churches. And if we're honest, we wanted to be in a city that we could love. The culture, the people, uh, and if, if you haven't been outside today, the weather's not too bad, right? So it's, it's pretty good here. So he, here we are, 18 months ago, 
me and my wife and my three kids, we have a seed of a vision for a church. We have a, a city, a place on the map. And me and my wife looks at me, uh, as sweet as she could be, and says, babe, I love you, but if it's just you and me, I ain't going. I'm not doing it. We're not doing this, okay? Uh, but by God's grace, within 10 months' time, God saw it fit to build a team of over 50 people to move their life from North Carolina to Tampa, Florida. Everybody sold houses, Left jobs, left friends, families, everything that was comfortable, leaving full-time jobs for multiple part-time jobs, leaving a jobs of 10 to 15 years. A lot of people took pay cuts, turning down great job offers to come here to be unemployed for a season. Some may say it's crazy, but what we would say is that Jesus is worth it. Every single bit of it. He's worth every single bit of it. We believe that everything that Jesus has done is worth every single sacrifice, every single challenge, and every single difficulty. So, so here we are as New City Church, great burden for the greater Tampa area with, the vision, with a very simple vision. And it's to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. That's our vision. Jesus is at the very center of our vision, the person and work of Jesus is central to our church. We call this the gospel. We talk, to, we talk about the, the gospel a lot here. Uh, so in short, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a message. It's a truth. It's the story of Jesus that affects our lives here today. And Jesus is at the very center of that truth. If you come to New City Church, we'll talk about Jesus because we moved our lives here because of him. People all over the world are completely altering their lives because of this man named Jesus. So for today and over the next several weeks, it begs the question. It begs the question, who is this man named Jesus? Right? If, if he's altered history, who is this man? Every major world religion recognizes Jesus as a wise teacher. Jews acknowledge him as a rabbi that was crucified. They rejected his divinity, but they acknowledged his death. Muslims all over the world recognize Jesus as a good teacher. They recognize him as a prophet. The Quran is very explicit in, in, in speaking highly of Jesus. You know, they don't believe he was God, but they believe he was a good man, a wise teacher. Buddhists, Hindus, most majors religion at least acknowledge the existence of Jesus. Even atheists that don't believe in God, if you ask most atheists if they think Jesus was a good teacher, a wise man, a kind man, most would say and agree with you that yes, he was a wise and kind man. So at the very least, we need to ask the question, who is Jesus? So if you're, if you're a Christian here today, I hope this series over the next several weeks will strengthen your faith. I hope that it will deepen your love and affection for who Jesus is. I hope that you'll see that Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. And also we'll see that if what the Bible says is true, it demands much more than just half-hearted devotion. If Jesus is who he says he is, we can't tiptoe around our faith. Right? We, our faith must be much more than that. If you're not a Christian here today, I hope that at the very least, this would intrigue you. I hope that this, just as we ask this question, who is Jesus, I hope that this would intrigue you, cause you to ask questions, to really think and reflect on what you believe to be true. Now, I want to invite you to explore the Christian faith with us. I think you'll find that Christianity is a very logical faith. We want to think well. We want to reason really well. We want to have consistent, good thoughts. But at the end of the day, faith is required. Faith is required. Faith is required in every single world religion. Faith is required for atheists and agnostics. The question we have to answer, however, is which step of faith is the shortest step? Which is the shortest step? And over the past 15 years, as I've studied most major world religions, you know, spent countless time speaking with people from all over the world, I've, I've, had I've had hours of dialogue with atheists and agnostics. I've concluded that true biblical Christianity is the most logical and consistent step of faith. 
And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about, we're going to walk through a book in the Bible, a book called Mark, a, a book of Mark, book, the book of Mark, also called the Gospel According to Mark. You know, I could spend countless hours just talking about why the Bible is reliable and how we can see the Bible as more than just a historical document and how it's much, but how it's much more than that. How the Bible is divine and wholly inspired book. And because of that, uh, we, we, we here at New City Church, we use the Bible as our ultimate source of authority. The Bible is our ultimate source. If you're, if you're not a Christian here today and you're skeptical of this, I would love to sit down and walk through this with you. At least have a dialogue with you. But for the sake of time and simplicity, we're going to start on the basis that the Bible is in fact the word of the Lord. That's where we're going to start. And that every word matters and is true, that every single word was spoken and breathed out by God. Maybe you're here today, and you do believe that the Bible is the word of the Lord. Maybe you believe that. But the question we all need to answer, as a pastor, Pastor Tim Keller said, he said, you believe the Bible as the word of the Lord, but have you personally met the Lord of the Bible? Have you personally met the Lord of the Bible? Can you say your faith is real? true, authentic faith? Can you say you truly know God personally and intimately? So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to have it up here on the screens here. And if, if you don't have a Bible at home, we, have, we would love to give you a Bible. We have, we have Bibles on our back table here. They're, they're going to be free for you as a gift if you don't have one at home. So we'd love to give that to you. So follow along with me in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, In the, be- the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So real quick, a few important things for us to know about the book of Mark. It's widely believed that the book of Mark was written by John Mark, who was actually Peter's scribe. Mark was to Peter, I like to think, like Batman was to Robin. He was kind of his right-hand man. They were together a lot. So the book of Mark, it's widely believed that these are the accounts seen through the lens of Peter, because John Mark, the author of Mark, he was with Peter a lot, and so Peter was with Jesus, and so Peter was a fisherman. The book is also unique in that this is the actions of Jesus. It shows a lot about the actions of Jesus, it, it, just as much as the teachings of Jesus. So a lot of people will say that uh, the book of Mark, it's a script and a picture, right? It paints a picture of Jesus, kind of like a play-by-play that we would see. It's often said that Mark wrote with a paintbrush, kind of giving us a picture of, what we see, of who we see Jesus to be. And so knowing that, based on the text uh, that we just read, we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to go through it line by line. And we're going to seek to answer two very simple questions. Who is John, number one? And then number two, who is Jesus? That's our outline for today. And so as, as, you, as you're with me, follow along. We're gonna, we've already talked about the importance of Jesus. 
But John, this guy John, he's a uniquely significant person. John the Baptist in our story, he's quite the character. I've, I've always been fascinated with John the Baptist. Uh, just the characterization of John, he's a fascinating guy, and, and, and he's pretty important. And in our time, we're going we're gonna to drive home this one big idea uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what we're going to see, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is, this is a commonly used phrase in the Christian world, and today we're going to see why this is important. And I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be good. That's just me personally, okay? Let's look, at, let's look at our text. Look at verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right off the bat, we get to our main point. <laughs> Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he tells us. This is a significant statement. It's Mark's opening statement. His first impression to the reader. Right off the bat, Mark's, Mark saw it fit to call Jesus the Son of God. And as, as I've already said, I'm, I'm going to punt uh, to why, the, why Jesus is the Son of God, why that's significant. I'm going to punt that to the end of our time. But for now, I want us to look at the first phrase, the beginning of the gospel. Mark is telling us that we have a full story here. Beginning of the gospel. We have a full story. We have really good news. He's alerting us. He's alerting the readers at the time that we're about to read something great. And, and, and I find it interesting how he follows this up. Like he says, this is going to be really good. And then this is what he says. Look at verse 2. And as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then it says, John appeared. I find this so interesting. Because he begins the gospel of Jesus, not with Jesus, but he, he begins it with a guy named John. So immediately, this begs the question, which is number one, who is John? That's the question. Who is John? And why is John so important for us to know? Why is he important to Jesus? So listen to what he says in verses two and three. Just listen. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So I understand whenever we get into speaking of prophets, it can get a little confusing. Uh, so let me put this plainly for you, okay? About 500 years prior to this time, God spoke through a man named Isaiah and then also to a guy named Malachi. And both of these guys received a, received a message from God that someone would come before the Messiah. He would be the savior of the world and prepare his way. He would, he, this guy was coming before the savior of the world. He was preparing his way, kind of like the opening act of a concert or like a, a, a comedian that comes up on stage to kind of warm the crowd up and get them ready for the main event. Uh, that's, that's exactly what John was doing. John prepared the way for Jesus. John prepared the way for Jesus. So get this. God's people during this time have been waiting for hundreds of years for this moment. And John's arrival, he's starting to pique their attention. He's, he's waking their attention. He's piquing their ear, signifying, getting ready, getting them ready for the main event. So what did John do? How did John prepare the way for Jesus? How did he get everybody ready for this main event? Look what it says in verse 4. Number, verse 4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So what did John do to prepare the way for Jesus? Uh, what was his warm-up event for Jesus? He starts, he starts preaching. And a revival breaks out in the entire area. And this was no small event. It says 
Uh, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem came to this guy named John. Like the entire area came up to John. Who, by the way, let me point this out, he was not your average Joe. <laughs> Look at the picture Mark is painting of John. It says in verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I don't know how else to put it. Okay, when I read that, I immediately think Tarzan. That's just what I think. Uh, that's just me. When I read this 15 years ago, and I think it still might be true. I don't know. Uh, I wrote in my Bible when I read this for the first time. I kid you not. I wrote next to this verse. I went back and looked at it this week. It says, AKA, a beast of a man. That's what I said. Uh, when I think of John the Baptist, I think of a really tough guy, a guy you don't want to mess with. I mean, he wore camel's hair and ate bucks. Like, what are you going to do with this guy? You know, in wild honey, uh, like he actually went into, he, he had wild honey. So think about that. He didn't have those suits that you go into, right? He went into beehives by himself without anything and, and got the honey. I mean, that's a tough, fearless dude. And he was gaining popularity. People were coming from all over to see this guy, to hear this guy. And look what they were doing when they were coming. The Bible says that John was preaching about repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And then it says they were confessing their sin. They were confessing, sharing all the things that they had done wrong. This, this isn't typically what we think of uh, as a warm-up event. Right, this isn't your average warm-up event. This isn't what we think is going to actually draw a crowd. When you go to a dinner party, the, the most common thing uh, to warm up a crowd is not to confess sins to one another. Sharing your deepest, darkest secrets is not a great way to warm people up in a dinner party. Right? Most people are just going to dart out the doors and leave as soon as possible. That's what happens. But here's the thing. All of these people that were coming to him, that were hearing him, that were listening to him preach, all of them, they recognized their brokenness. All of them. They realized that something with the world is wrong. They understood they needed help. These people were carrying a burden they could no longer carry. They may have felt dirty and stained, messed up. They knew that something in their life wasn't right. Their life didn't seem like rainbows and butterflies. That's just where they were. <laughs> On the outside, they put up a facade, a mask, but on the inside, they knew they were drowning. And then they had done this for, for far too long. Their souls were not at rest. Their families were broken. They were, their work was burdensome. They knew something was not right in their life. And John, John was putting his finger on the problem. The problem was their sin. It was their sin. They couldn't clean themselves of their wrong. They, they knew they couldn't get rid of their burden, their guilt, their emptiness. And as we think about this, everybody in this room here today, we have to understand this. We have to understand what John was doing because this is essential to the gospel. This is essential. Just like John was preaching the way for Jesus by proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sin, we here today, each of us, before we can understand the greatness of God, the good news of the gospel, and the greatness of Jesus Christ, if we want to be able to fully understand the answer to the question, who is Jesus, we have to first understand the problem of sin. We have to understand the brokenness of in our lives. We have to come face to face and realize that this world is broken. We have to understand that we are broken. We have to understand that the world is not the way it ought to be. Sin is something that most people just don't like to talk about. Let's be honest. It feels like kind of your dirty laundry. Right? It's a little embarrassing. Let's be honest. It feels rude and invasive. That's what, that's what we think of when we think of sin. But in order to understand Jesus, we have to first understand our need for Jesus. This is true for everyone here. This is something every single person in this room, including me, including me, has to understand and deal with every single day. It's the same person who's been a Christian for 50 years, and it's the person that's completely rejects Christ. 
This is true for everybody. When someone rejects Christ, honestly, they still have to wrestle with that question, what is wrong with the, what is wrong with the world? They have to have, be able to answer that question. If you're a Christian here today, don't miss this. Don't miss this. The precursor to our devotion to Christ is daily recognizing our brokenness. Daily recognizing our brokenness. When we fail to recognize our brokenness, the gospel is no longer good news. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, this is something that we need to grasp. And we need to grasp it daily, honestly. This is a daily thing. The way to Jesus, the daily path to Jesus, is through a posture of humility, brokenness, and repentance. If we fail to understand our daily need for Jesus, we will fail to understand the sweetness of the gospel. Before the gospel can be good news, we have to first understand the bad news. Someone who doesn't think they're sick will not be thrilled with the medicine Jesus provides, but someone who recognizes the disease of sin will be thrilled with the medicine of the gospel. So how do we answer the question? Who was John? What did John do? This is, how, this is how we answer the question. John showed that at the beginning of the gospel is a broken humanity. At the beginning of the gospel is a broken humanity. John prepared the way for Jesus. He warmed up the crowd by preaching about sin and repentance. John prepared the way for Jesus. John prepared the way to be the savior of the, for the Savior of, of the world by reminding the world it needed to be saved. By reminding each person they needed to be saved from their sin because the reality is that a holy God cannot be in the presence of of anything unholy. And our sin makes us unholy. And because of our sin, just one sin, completely, we're left rejected by God. Because of just one sin, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin, they're eternally devastating. Eternally devastating. We have to get this. We must understand sin to understand Jesus. So John the Baptist comes in, preaching about sin and the need for repentance. Essentially, John prepared the way for Jesus by reminding people of the bad news so that they could be prepared for the good news. That's what he was doing. And then look what John says in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John a mighty man, eating bugs and uh, wild honey, covered in camel's hair and wears leather belts, which he probably didn't get from belts. He probably had to get them with his bare hands. That's just who John is. Uh, he, he, I don't know, but this is the point. John was a fierce man drawing in massive crowds. And then he says to everyone there, someone mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie is coming. Because listen, John was great, but someone greater was coming. Right? John was mighty, but someone mightier was coming. And then he says in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. To say it a different way, John could only immerse and cleanse them with water. He could only do a ceremonial cleansing, which did not last. It did not last. But the one coming after John would immerse and cleanse them in partnership with the Holy Spirit. He could cleanse them of their sin, a cleansing that could last forever. To the people at the time, this was a massive declaration. This was a massive declaration. This was a big deal. These people knew throughout their history that whenever the Spirit of God came, showed up, it was something divine, something only God could do. And because he's saying he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one coming after John, this man, he would be divine. 
and have the same authority as God. Essentially saying, God is coming onto the scene. That's what he's declaring. God is coming onto the scene. And look what shows up in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being tore open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately following John's declaration of a divine man coming, of a man holding the authority of God, a man bestowed with the Holy Spirit, Mark begins to paint a picture of a man named Jesus. This man, he appears to be humble. Right? He has humble beginnings coming, with, coming from a small town in the middle of nowhere. He came from, he, he came from uh, Nazareth of Galilee, as it says. This man, honestly, when you kind of look at it, it seems to be, from the outside, he seems to be a nobody from nowhere. That's just where he came from. Galilee, from Nazareth of Galilee. And as he comes onto the scene, we start to notice a few things about Jesus. We see that Jesus was humble. And we start to see that he could relate with a broken humanity. John was baptized. John was baptized. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And when he was baptized, it became very evident that his baptism was very different. Jesus' baptism was different. He goes into the water and he comes out. And immediately, he saw heaven open up. And the spirit that John said would be bestowed onto the man coming after him, the spirit descends onto Jesus like a dove. That's what it says. And it becomes abundantly clear that this man, this man named Jesus, is the one who will come after John, who will, come, who will be mightier than John, who will be greater than John. This is the man that John was preparing everyone for. And in this moment, the author, Mark, he's beginning to paint this picture. He's beginning to answer the question, our, question, our second question for today, who is Jesus? Right? Mark shows up. He shows how Jesus comes, you know, he shows his great humility. Mark shows how Jesus relates with humanity, how Jesus understands what it means to be human. Mark illustrates the Spirit of God descended onto heaven, descended onto Jesus, showing and marking that this man was more than just a human. He was much more than that. He was showing that Jesus was divine. Jesus was sent from heaven. And then look back what it says in verse 11. It says, And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. He's showing a lot of things about Jesus. Not only was Jesus humble, relatable, divine, and sent from heaven. Mark takes it a step further. And Mark shows how God is going all in. Going all in. Not only was Jesus divine and sent from heaven. He was. Jesus was and is. Much more than that. Here in verse 11, a voice from heaven comes down and speaks to Jesus and says to him, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. You see, Mark, yet again, just like he did in verse 1, Mark shows us our big idea for today. Mark begins to answer our question, who is Jesus? So who is Jesus? And as we said, our big idea, Jesus is the son of God. And as we follow up, as we follow up the question of this, we have to ask, why is this such a big deal? Why is it important that Jesus was and is the Son of God? Now, I want you guys to put on your thinking caps here for a second, okay? Uh, follow me for just a minute, because Jesus being called the Son of God is very important. It's very significant. Because Jesus being called the Son of God is putting Jesus with God. It's putting them in the same category, making Jesus divine. Making Jesus God. 
Jesus is more than just a high-ranking official. He's more than an angel from heaven. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a rabbi or a wise teacher or a nice man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus sits on the throne with God. Listen, he can't, he can't be a wise, nice man that claimed to be God and then not be God. He can't do that. He's either a crazy man or he's truly the Son of God. You see, Mark, he's painting a word picture of Jesus' divine nature by calling Jesus the Son of God. He's equating Jesus with God. When someone is born by something, their offspring is like them. C.S. Lewis, an author, uh, a theologian, puts it like this. He says, a human begets a human, a beaver begets a beaver, a bird begets a bird. So what comes from the offspring of God? He says, God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. There are many other good reasons right, why Jesus, why it's important that Jesus is the Son of God. For example, we see their unique relationship with God. But as, and as we go through Mark, we'll see that Jesus showed a unique relationship of love and obedience to God the Father. But the point I want to hit home tonight is that the only the Son of God could do what a broken humanity could not do. It took the Son of God. This is what I mean by that. As I've already said, I think every single person in this room would agree that something with the world is off. It's broken. Just watch the news, right? Look, at there's war and violence and hate crime and abuse. But it's not just on the news. It's in everyday life. There's relational strife, lying, stealing, cheating. We could go on and on about the problem of sin. And you see, John, he understood this problem. The people around John knew it. And we here today, we also experience it every single day. But this is what we must understand, okay? The greatest problem of our sin is that it separates us from God. As, as I said earlier, that John showed that the beginning of the gospel is a broken humanity, that we must understand sin to understand Jesus. But do you know what the other problem is? And there is absolutely nothing we can do to fix the problem. Absolutely nothing. We can be as nice and pleasant as we can be. We can try as hard as possible to be kind, to be generous, to care for people. But the problem is sin still is still present in all of our lives. Sin still leaves a stain that we cannot get rid of. Trying to do more good than bad, it's not good enough. It won't work. Trying to live a moral life, the Bible is clear it's not good enough. Because remember, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. Just one sin separates us from God. Sin is the bad news, but that is the really bad news. Because it's true for every single person here. If you've ever stolen anything, you're separated from God forever. If you've ever cheated, you're separated from God forever. If you've ever lied, separated forever. We could go on and on and on because there's nothing humanly possible that can cleanse us from our sin. So what did God do because of this problem of sin? I told you we have to understand the bad news, the tragic, devastating, really bad news to understand the good news. God sent his only son to be the rescuer, to be the redeemer, the savior. And this, my friends, this is the gospel. Sin is the bad news. The penalty of our sin is the bad news. But this is the good news of the gospel, that God sent his son, Jesus, to save the world from the penalty of sin. You see, only God's son could do what a broken humanity could not do. God demanded perfection, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. Not a single person on this planet is able to meet this standard. So God sent his son, his offspring, his beloved, to fulfill the standard, to do what no other human could do. Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live. But as we said and as we know, 
Sin, it has a consequence. It has a penalty. The Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death and hell. In order for sin to be paid in full, death had to occur. Hell must be conquered. Something had to be sacrificed because of sin. It must be dealt with. So what did God do? God sent Jesus, his beloved son. He sent his son to live the life that we could not live. And then he died the death that we deserve. God sent his son, Jesus, who was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, who never sinned, to die a criminal's death, to die on the cross. So the wages of our sin, the penalty of our sin, it could be paid in full. Jesus went to the cross for us. He went to the cross to take the penalty of our sin. And guess what? Jesus died the death that we deserve. But do you know what else he did that only God could do? That only the Son of God could do? He rose from the dead. He he defeated sin and death. His grave is nowhere to be found. Why can't anybody find his grave? Because he rose from the dead. His tomb was empty. And if this is true, Jesus is much more than just a nice man. If this is true, Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of our devotion. And this seems so simple and almost too easy. But this is the gospel. This is why we have good news. When we simply believe in Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we get the greatest gift that we could ever receive. When we trust in Jesus, we get get what Jesus earned. When we believe in Jesus, God looks at us as he looks at Jesus' son. And do you know what our passage today tells us? about the relationship between God and his son, Jesus? Look again in verse 11. This is what God says to Jesus, his son. He says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news. Today, through the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer viewed as rejected by God, but we are adopted as sons and daughters. Through the gospel, because of what Jesus did at the cross, how he went to the cross in our place, how he died the death that we deserve, how he rose from the dead and defeated sin and death. When we trust in Jesus, we are no longer rejected by God for eternity, but rather, God looks at us today and says to us, by name, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Through the gospel, because of what Jesus did for us, we can become children of God. To say it another way, Jesus was sacrificed as the Son of God, so we can be adopted as the children of God. And then it even gets better. Because of this, God looks at us and says, because of the gospel, he says to us, God's children, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. This is such good news today. We go from being separated from the Father forever for eternity as rebels stained by sin to becoming his sons and daughters with whom he is well pleased. Jesus takes away the stain of our sin. I want to close out our time by addressing two different groups of people here today. First, I just want to talk to the Christian in the room. This is such good news for you today. This is such good news. If you came in here today feeling the weight and knowing the stain of your sin, know this, God has given you a new identity. Your stain is gone. You have been set free. I want to call you to cherish the identity you've been given in the gospel. Cherish it. Because he looks at you and me, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, 
no matter your sin, no matter what weight or burden you hold, he says to you and me, if you are in Christ, he says to you, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter. With, with you, I am well pleased. To this, we can say Jesus is enough. And he's worthy of our worship and devotion. Walk in that identity today. Walk in the identity as a child of God. This is not a faith to tiptoe around. This is not a faith to be half-hearted about. When we understand our new identity, our life cannot be the same. Because if we're truly a son and daughter of God, we start to listen. We start to obey God. We start to have new desires. We start to serve and worship Him, to sacrifice for Him. You start longing for the things of God over the things of the world. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect until Jesus returns because sin is still present. The world is still broken. But when you understand your new identity, God starts to change you. He starts to change you. When you understand that you're a child of God, you can no longer tiptoe around your faith because you understand that God sacrificed everything for you. He gave up his son for you so that he could have you and me. If this, is the me- if this message is true, it demands our devotion. Walk in your new identity. Secondly, secondly, if you're not a Christian here today, you would not say that Jesus is the Lord of your life. I want to urge you. I want to plead with you to consider the claims of Jesus. To consider the truth that your sin, it holds you in bondage. That just one sin eternally separates you from the God that made you. Get that. Yeah, in God's kindness. Get this. In God's kindness, even, in, in, even because of your sin. God has made a way for you. God has made a way. He sent Jesus to do everything necessary to save you. If you're not a Christian here today, hear this. God wants to look down at you and say, with you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. But without Jesus, without proclaiming Jesus as Lord of your life, he cannot. Without Jesus as our Lord, he cannot look at you. He cannot look at us and say, with you I am well pleased. Because we have sin in our heart. We have sin in our life. He wants to call you his beloved child. He wants wants that. But he can't because of your sin. Today can be the day. Today can be the day that you call Jesus the Lord of your life. You can be given a new identity. Today you can be given a new standing before God. The stain of your sin, Jesus wants to take it. He wants to take it completely. 100% gone. Stain free. That's the gospel. Stain free. Today can be the day. Jesus wants to look down and smile at you and welcome you into his arms and claim you as his beloved son and daughter. God sent Jesus, his only son, to the cross so that you could be as adopted as his son and daughter. Today can be the day. Would you trust him? If this is something you know you need, if this is something you want, if you want to trust in Christ today and be called a beloved son and daughter of God, the God of the universe, I'm going to close in prayer and and I want you to pray with me. If this is something that you know you need, if this is something that you are, are longing for, to be with God forever, Pray with me as I pray, but know this. This is, something, this is, this is not something that can, you can do alone. You need to tell someone here today. We want to walk this journey with you. So if you, if you, would, if you would bow your heads, I'm going to pray. Father, I have no clue who you are stirring here today. 
I have no clue whose heart you are tugging on. I have no clue who you're going to call tonight. But Father, I pray that if there's someone here that wants to cry out and call God their Father, that you would call them here tonight. Father, I pray that if they're here tonight, they would pray with me. Father, we understand our sin. We understand our brokenness. There's someone here as simple as crying out to God and saying, God, I need you. I want you to save me. Be my God and Father. I trust you. You're Lord of my life. That's it. Just looking up to God. Thank God I love you. There, there are people here today that want to call God their Father and be called a son and daughter of God that you would stir in their hearts affections to cry out to God. And Father, as we close out our time, we... We pray that you would continue to work, we would continue to sing, we would continue to worship. And if you have worked in someone's heart tonight, that you would give them the boldness and the courage to tell someone so that we can celebrate what God has done. We ask this all in Jesus.